as long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radio Potomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. Davey, uh, you book this one. I'll let you open it up on, on uh, during this segment. Go ahead. Um, our our guest is a uh, native of the Rear Gun Valley, native to Brownsville, uh, also spent some time growing up in, in Edinburgh, went off and got a college education. Um, and he's now writing a column, which is uh, a lot harder than you think, uh, for the uh, for the San Antonio Express News. He's an editorial writer and a columnist. So if you read an editorial in the San Antonio Express News, you think those guys are full of baloney. Just <laughs> Called Gilbert. This guy, seriously, Davis, come on. I am. Uh, he wrote a column that said what I think, I know I think, and I think you think too, which is, yeah, the Valley, South Texas has been voting for Republicans, but it's not in the Republican camp yet. And Gilbert, uh, we welcome you to the radio station, radio to, to the uh, drive home. So tell us what you found and why did you decide to come find it? Well, you know, as you pointed out, I, I spent my first 12 years in Brownsville, uh, then lived in Edinburgh after that, and uh, kind of lived all over the place, but about the last 20 years in San Antonio. And I go down, we, I visit, uh, you know, family down there. I'm always talking to people about politics uh, when I'm there and trying to get a sense of what people are thinking. And um, and I guess what I you know, had, had noticed was, you know, that there's mm-hmm. a lot of national media attention on the Valley, and that sometimes I think... Um, you know, people coming in from the outside, and I'm coming in from the outside at this point, but I think there's a tendency to maybe uh, overstate things or to just maybe run with a story and and and, uh, mm-hmm. and inflate it. And so I was trying to get some sense as best I could because, you know, you spend a few days there, you, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to, there's a lot you're not going to learn. It's a complex thing. But uh, to try to get some understanding of of what's what's really going on there and to look at some of the historical factors there too um so that's what and i guess what i found uh, is that um i think the valley has always been fundamentally politically conservative and that it w- it's been dominated by democrats but it's generally been conservative to moderate democrats and i think that i don't think that the valley is experiencing an ideological shift just in the same way that you know texas was dominated by conservative mm-hmm. democrats and then it became conservative Republicans. Texas never really experienced an ideological shift. It was just a, 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 part, a yeah. party realignment. And I think there's probably a little of that happening in the Valley, but I don't, I think it's probably been overstated. I, and I, what I guess I feel is that the, the attachments that people have felt to the parties is loosening, but I don't, I don't know that it's going, going red, at yeah. least not yet. I mean, I, I, I'm curious. So to, is it, to, to is it finally, is the area finally being allowed to shine and show its true colors before we can make any other assumptions about it? And what was keeping it down so far? Was it the straight ticket vote? Was it the way the districts were drawn? What is it? 
Yeah, I think I think straight ticket voting probably did have some some impact. And I, I also didn't get too much into I, I, when one of the people I talked to, Hilda Garza de Chezo, uh, with the Republican yeah. Party in Hidalgo County. Um, we did we did talk a little bit about that, about, you know, the fact that now people, you know, not having that straight ticket vote, it, it can it can affect it can affect some of the races. Um, I think that was that's been part of it. Um, I think that there are just, you know, what we've seen in the last few years, I think, has to do with uh, particulars of some of these races. And I think that's one of the things I wanted to get into. You know, for example, yeah. um, you know, we've seen when, when uh, we've seen a, a Texas House district or a congressional district, you know, a flip, like, for example, a, a U.S. House District 15 with Monica Dela Cruz. You know, you're, you're looking at, at redistricting playing a pretty big role in some of these things. Um, and then you have, you know, Myra Flores, that was a special election. I mean, it was, it was a, I think, a, an amazing upset for, for many people. And it was, you know, it was, a, it was a big victory. But we all know that special elections are kind of a law unto themselves. And, and then one of the things that got so much national attention was uh, when Mayor Villalobos Lobos in, in McAllen. And um, I think that that, again, was, you know, was, you know I don't, it was. I think a lot of it was made of it because he had been affiliated with the Republican Party, but I, I didn't feel like he was the first Republican uh, elected mayor in McAllen. It just was perceived that way. And that's yeah, true, he, too, because he was. it's not a partisan race, and we all made that very clear. He exactly. made that very clear that he's not running as yeah. a Republican. He doesn't like disavow that's the right. party, but he wasn't exactly wearing that on his sleeve either. He was proud of the work that yeah, he had he, done as, as chairman. Yeah, and when I was talking to to Richard Gonzalez with the the Dog County Democratic Party, he was saying, "Well, I'm a good friend of his, and I like him a lot." You know, so he's not, as you say, he's not a partisan figure. He's, but, and I've seen this happen in San Antonio sometimes too. With we will, there'll be a nonpartisan election, a mayoral election, and the the national media focus on it as though it's a victory for one party or another, and that get get uh, carried away. Let me, let me reintroduce you. Gilbert Garcia has an article in uh, the San Antonio Express News, and we're talking about the state of uh, the playing ground. We're setting the stage before we get into early right. vote for the primaries coming up. Davey, go ahead with your question. Uh, if you could drill down a little bit on on uh, party shift, because you, you, you can make a good argument that their views haven't changed, except as views change over the years, but that the parties views have changed and so their allegiance has changed to the way that vote has changed right yeah well when, when i was talking to uh to uh state senator uh, uh chewy Hosa, who of course is a you know is a uh a democrat i mean he talked about the fact that the national democratic party has in you know in his perception i think there's a lot of truth in that has moved to the left and yeah particularly in the 2020 election. And this is where I think you start, I think the, the national media really started to say something's happening in the Valley. And, and if we think back to 2020, um, we were hearing from a lot of progressive Democrats around the country, things about defunding the police. We were, there was a lot of talk. Um, I mean, there continues to be a lot of talk from the Democrats about climate change, but at that point there was, I think, you know, some rhetoric about, um, you know, really moving away from oil and gas and, um, you know, there were just and then, you know, and then Beto O'Rourke during that presidential campaign talked about, yes, I'm going to take your guns. So I think Chuy Nosa was making the point that that you know, that that's just not in alignment with, with the valley. And that's probably that probably hurt the Democrats. I don't know that those kinds of uh, we're hearing as much of that kind of rhetoric from Democrats in 2024. And it'll be interesting to see what happens. But I mean, I haven't I don't think you're seeing prominent Democrats uh 
saying things like defund the police or we're going to take your guns or anything like that. But, <laughs> um, but I think those have been problematic. And I think that what ends up happening is, you know, uh, probably a lot of Valley voters are very pragmatic, looking for people who are going to actually help their lives. And they tend to probably elect Democrats and Republicans who kind of who fit that mold. But within the Democratic Party nationally and within the Republican Party nationally, you have people, uh, the big voices are often more on the uh, the extremes. Strident, yes. Uh, yes, sir. Gilbert, Gilbert Garcia is a, uh, he has a right of, uh, he has an article in the San Antonio Express News. We're talking about the state of politics right before we start talk, uh, going into um, early vote for the primaries here. The, the question that I had has to do with Latinos in general. Uh, we just took over as the majority race in the state of Texas, right? And uh, right. now what I've been seeing a lot of is there's kind of a divide especially on the internet, because I've been seeing a lot of Reddit posts and Facebook comments where people are, are saying things like, why are Latinos uh, voting against their own self-interest by voting Republican? They're Trump supporters and this and that, and how come they're not voting our way, whatever that way may be, as if it's a, a monolith. What has been your experience so far in diving into this? Well, particularly in the Valley, uh, I think that you know, people, when people, you talk about people's self-interest, I mean, that's, everyone has, has different self-interest. I mean, if you have Latinos in the Valley who are working, you know, uh, in oil fields, their self-interest might be, you know, that might, might be a big part of their self-interest, or if they like to hunt and they're really, you know, guns are a big part of their life, or if they or, or family members work in law enforcement, you know, so, um, you know, I think that that, that idea about voting in self-interest is, sometimes can be uh, people are, are kind of narrow in the way that they define that. The thing that has, that has fascinated me with the Valley, one of the things has been the fact that there was an assumption made that when Donald Trump launched his 2016 campaign in 20, uh, in the summer of 2015 and, and made that famous speech where he said, you know, Mexico is not sending their best and they're sending, uh, you know, rapists and criminals. I think there was, there was a, a feeling that many had, that it would be really damaging to the Republican Party. Um, the Republican Party had done uh, an autopsy on their 2012 election cycle and said, we need to reach out to Latinos more effectively. We need to uh, soften our rhetoric, essentially, in, 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 and, just, and be more sort of uh, respectful in the way we talk about some of these things. And Trump seemed to fly in the face of that. And so there was a feeling that among many people that this is going to be really damaging to Republicans. And what we found in 2020 of course, was that Trump really closed the margin. He did better in 2020 in the Valley. Um, and what I looked at when I, I just combined the Valley counties and all the votes from the Valley counties and in 2016, Hillary Clinton got 68% of the vote in the Valley to 29% for Trump. In 2020, Biden got 57% to 42% for Trump. So he, he closed the margin from 39% to a 15 percentage point. And so that, that is definitely something that, uh, you know, it was a very interesting shift that happened there. Unfortunately, I think we've run out of time, yeah. Mr. Garcia. I would love to you know, pick this conversation up again uh, sometime right before early vote. But sure. uh, right now, uh, I've got his number. We've run out. We've run out of time right now. Gilbert Garcia is a native of Brownsville, Texas. He's got a neat uh, write up an opinion piece in the San Antonio Express News titled, While GOP sees red in the Rio Grande Valley, Dems have no reason to feel blue. And uh, you're listening to News Talk 710 KURV. This is your 956 Drive Home.
You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710-KURV and KURV.com. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids to running errands. Your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. Joining us now on 710 KURV, we're talking about the discrete erosion of U.S. household savings and I got I got questions about uh, who I call Evil Ron Paul, the head of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell. And I got those questions for our guest. And uh, his name is Daniel Elmore. And he's a commentator for Young Voices, uh, formerly the Data and Analytics Coordinator at Chalkboard Review, a student of economics, a constant student of economics. And uh, he's well-educated to talk about this topic here. So the discrete erosion of household savings. This is your article in the Washington Examiner. How did this uh, come to be? How did you scout this out? Sure. So I've been watching household savings throughout the pandemic. And what we've seen is we've seen a huge spike in uh, personal savings during the pandemic whenever we had these stimulus packages. However, they would always fall back down. And what we've seen now is that they've fallen below pre-pandemic levels all the way down to $766 billion, which is about $300 billion less than we came into the pandemic with. What's, uh, what's causing all this? Sure. So th- there's many causes of this, but the main one that everyone's talking about is inflation, of course. Of course, um, while we have seen inflation come down over the past few months, um, people are still battling with inflation from 13 months, 14 months ago. And while that's not captured in the year-over-year statistics, people are still having to work with it. Now, uh, I don't know. How do you how do you fix a problem like this, right? Because it's hard to save. It's always been hard to save. It's one of those things that you always say you're going to get around to if you're not already doing it. Like, oh, I mean to do it. And, you know, what what, uh, what are driving these spending habits? Sure. So there's two main ways for people to deal with this, and neither of them are great. The first one is to incur more debt. Now, currently in the United States, households have $17 trillion in um, federal or in debt. So what we're seeing is that people cannot take out more debt, but people also are having trouble saving and cutting down their expenses due to inflation. Joining us on 710-KURV, he's got an article in the Washington Examiner titled the discrete erosion of U.S. household savings. His name is Daniel Elmore, joining us on your 956 Drive Home. Davey, go ahead. Let me ask a question for clarification. When you say discrete, why is it, what does that mean, and why do you say it's discrete? Sure. So many of the talking heads on all these big news channels are talking about the triumph of Bidenomics. Yeah. But... What we're saying is that while a lot of the top-line numbers are great for the administration, there's a lot of underlying numbers, such as the personal savings 
statistics that I cite in this article that are not looking so good for the Biden administration. What are some of those numbers? What can you tell us? Sure. So, like, um, just on Friday, we saw uh, the jobs report come out, and it came out very hot with 353,000 jobs added to the um, to the workforce, as well as a 3.7 unemployment rate. But what we also saw was that the labor force participation rate has continued to decline and is still below pre-pandemic levels. Labor wow. participation is still below pandemic? Yes, it has still what, not what, recovered from the pandemic. What does incredible. that mean, labor participation, if you, just to be clear? Sure. So labor participation is really important because that determines how many people you can have working for you. But if you have a low unemployment rate and a low um, labor force participation rate, uh, that means the unemployment rate is being artificially lowered because of the low labor force participation. So why has it felt recently, uh, Davey, I'm sorry if you have a question, uh, but let me jump in here. We're speaking with Daniel Elmore, who is a writer in the Washington Examiner, who knows a lot about the economy. He's uh, got an uh, article titled, The Discrete Erosion of U.S. Household Savings, our guest right now on 710KURV. Why, why is it that it feels like there's this strange accordion effect, I guess you could say, uh, or, you know, like... Not all the train, not all the cars on the on the train are moving at the same pace, oh. and they're kind of just bumping into each other. What, what's going on here? Sure. So, what we're saying is that there's a lot of disconnect between a lot of the urban areas, a lot of the rural areas, a lot of the high income earners, and a lot of low income earners. So while many people who are like on these big news channels are happy with the current economy and are not worried about their current savings rate. We have less than, or about 50% of people who have less than $2,000 in their savings account right now. It's kind and of I, always, and, I, and I'm one of them. <laughs> we've always <laughs> guilty, but our, our uh, savings rate in my memory has always been not very good. Certainly not as well, not very good. Um, it wouldn't couldn't you turn that around and say, well, that's a that's a vote of confidence in the American economy. I don't have to have a lot of savings because I can always get a job or blah, blah, blah. Well, sure. Uh, our personal savings rate has been uh, right now is at three point seven percent. But prior to the pandemic, it was closer to seven percent to um, get back to three point or at three point seven percent. That's about what it was during the great financial crisis. So, yes, while people may be happy to have lower savings right now, there's going to come a point where there's going to be a recession. Now, whether that be six months from now or five years from now, nobody knows. But there will be a recession at some point that people need to prepare for. Yeah, well, we were. This this leads to what I was uh, mentioning at the top of the of the segment where. Uh, it was on the Sunday shows that evil Ron Paul, Jerome Powell, head of the Federal Reserve, uh, came out and said, hey, guys, $34 trillion, that's a lot of money, and I don't know if our economy is in a position to uh, even begin to make up for that for that money. Uh, what, what's your take on that? Well, the problem is that the incentives are misaligned for politicians. Politicians want to have something to go back home to their voters for and say, hey, look, I did this. I spent this. But, um, and I gave you this. 
But right now, the economy just cannot handle that. And there's going to come a point where U.S. Say, or U.S. bonds are just not as confident, or people are not as confident in them. Uh, Is there anything? We, oh, go ahead, Davey. Um, yeah, that um, does does the lack of confidence. I don't know if this is historically provable. Does it happen gradually, or does it happen almost from one day to the next? Like you wake up, you look in your bank account, and you go, "Oh my God, I didn't realize I didn't realize how broke I am." Or does this occur over time? Uh, it can occur both ways. Um, what we saw with like in 1987 is that the stock market fell in one day. So that so yes, that happened where it's a shock. But there's also times where we see. There are signs in ahead of time that people can look for. Well, how will we know when the when the the, the boom is about to be lowered? <laughs> yeah, when do we go into the bomb shelters? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, that's the ultimate question of economics: <laughs> trying to figure what? out whenever uh, the problem or when the boom goes to bust. Well, yeah. And that's what, true what do you think if you had if you had to guess right. for your bosses what what would you next year what what has to happen for it to happen something in the economy has to break a major sector right now it's looking like it's going to be commercial real estate that is a big problem because Ooh. of how, how we've seen these um uh, work from home policies go Oh man, and we can't convert that into housing. Lord knows we need that. <laughs> we need those houses. I know people like to sleep at work, you know what I mean? Like live at live at the office, but uh uh converting that would probably help a lot of people. I don't know if that's even feasible. No. It, it, is, it, it is done. It, it it can be done, but um so right, right after the the bottom falls out, then we'll we'll all go get wherever the rich people live and run them out of their houses and take them. Right. Cause that's, that's going to be the battle cry in politics. Yeah. That's when the buffet of eating the rich is going to happen. Right. Let's let's end this on a happy note. Uh, any silver linings here in this report? As much as I would wish to say so, uh, the only thing is that inflation seems to be slowing down. It's not coming down are still going up but it is down. all right daniel thanks a lot for Thank your you time appreciate much. it thanks for hanging out with us for a little bit that's daniel elmore uh he has an article in the washington examiner the discreet erosion of u.s household savings you're listening to news talk 710 kurv you are 956 drive home you're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 drive home on news talk 710 kurv and kurv.com I love your show. Hello. Hello. Having our voices heard. That's right. Yeah. You live and you learn. Exactly right. This is our country. Use your heads on this stuff. Bingo. Sick of the talking heads. I agree with you. Talk, 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 talk. Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm here. I'm just listening. Yes. No. Yeah. No. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah. Everyone is so smart. They are so dumb. Who is she the judge? To stand up to do something. Thank you. The Valley's only news talk station, News Talk 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. 
Joining us on 710 KURV from Texas Monthly is Michael Hall, and he's here to tell us a story of something that happened to somebody who was wrongfully imprisoned for a really, really, really long time. So let's start at the beginning, sir. Uh, What's the story here? What happened? Well, this is a story about a guy named Carlos Haile, who was convicted of a terrible crime, sexually assaulting a little girl in El Paso in 1990 even though there was no physical evidence and she had alibi witnesses. He had alibi witnesses. But a juror on the jury named Estelle Ibarra thought he was innocent and yet voted guilty because of peer pressure. It was 11 to 1. She gave in, and 27 years later, she decided to do something about it, called the DA, they reinvestigated, and they found DNA evidence, and voila, Carlos didn't do it. Yeah, this is How Davis. does that even... it's just it's totally bizarre i've never heard of anything like this before this is is davis rankin uh the um do do you do you know i I read the article but i don't remember if you talked about this the uh he had an alibi this guy was a just a a hard-working guy selling uh, had a family selling vacuum cleaners doing well happy in his job in el paso but and he had an yeah, alibi he, for when this crime occurred. How do you just yeah, brush the a, alibi aside? You know, he was a hardworking vacuum cleaner salesman, just a regular dude. And what they had, what the prosecution had, was this little girl who, two years after she had been sexually assaulted, saw him in a lineup and said it was him. So she was ten years old. So they trusted the word of a little girl two years after the you know, the yeah. terrible traumatic event over the fact that there was no evidence and he had three alibi witnesses. How did, how did uh, Ms. Ibarra um, get him sprung? Um, we, we've taken well, a particular this, interest in this sort of thing here on the talk show, but how do you get somebody out of jail who's been convicted? It's really hard to do. I mean, in the court system, it's really hard. And this was a private citizen. And, uh, you know, she, 27 years later, uh, she found a certificate that the, the judge had sent to her after the service back in 1990, thanking her for her service. She stuffed it in an envelope and thrown it in a desk drawer. Well, in 2017, she's cleaning out the drawer. She finds it. She says, okay, this time I'm going to do something about it. She calls up the cops. The cops say there's nothing you can do. This was too long ago. She calls back again, says, is there somebody else I can talk to? They pass her to somebody else who says, call the DA. So she calls the DA, goes through two different people, finally finds somebody yeah. who says, I'll look into it. They look into it, and they find, well, actually, El Paso police were doing, with the FBI, DNA testing for the very first time. This is 1990, at the very beginning of the DNA age, and it turns out that this uh, uh, testing did not match uh, Carlos at all. He was, he was uh, an innocent man. So you show this to the, by, by the way, this story is in the, I think it's the current Texas Monthly, which is, should be on newsstands. Yes, so so news you take, and it, yeah. you take the, the, uh, the paperwork, you go to the judge and say, look, and he says, by God, you're right. Uh, get that man out of jail. But it's not quite that easy. It's not that easy. I mean, this kind of process takes several years. Uh, he had to go through a, a whole process called the habeas corpus process. Uh, He had attorneys who filed a writ of habeas corpus. They had a hearing in El Paso. 
And the judge eventually, it wasn't just the cops who were hiding this evidence. The DA knew about it, and the guy, Carlos Haile's defense attorney, knew about it. No, Everybody no, no, knew explain about what it, do you mean? What do you mean anything. they? What What do they, you mean they knew about evidence which shows he didn't do it? They knew about the testing. The, the cops knew that the testing said Carlos did not do it, and the cops did not turn that over, as they're supposed to, to the defense attorneys. The DA knew that testing was going on, and so did the defense attorney. And they didn't, you know, ask any questions about it. They didn't push it any further. And so, you know, nothing was done for 27 years. Uh, when they when they come to him with the news, we're speaking with. Uh, oh, you just introduced him. Never mind. Uh, when, when they when they give him the news when, that uh, he's now free to go, what what happens there? And is there any compensation for being in prison for that long? Wrong uh, wrongfully. Well, he he was uh, you know he Carlos had kind of he always believed that the truth would come out, but he also worried that he would spend his life in prison. So he was ecstatic. The, the problem for him getting compensation, the, what the judge did is threw out the verdict. So there was no, threw out the guilty verdict, but they did not find him actually innocent. Actually innocent is a legal term. And if you are found actually innocent, you can get a lot of money as compensation. Texas is very generous in terms of compensation for those who've been wrongfully convicted. It's $80,000 a year. Carlos did almost 29 years, so he would be eligible for more than $2 million. Unfortunately for Carlos, the court did not find him actually innocent, and so that is the position he's in today. Uh, he's, he's not considered actually innocent, so he's kind but of he was uh, in, out of luck. How, how can the judge do that? And it's like no a legal purgatory that he's in. He's not, he's not necessarily guilty, but he's not innocent either. That's nuts. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they threw out the verdict, which is great, but <laughs> there's no, there's no, you know, uh, re taking responsibility for what they did and trying trying to make it right. It has to be done legally, and right now he's kind of out of luck legally. What what's he doing? Um, what's he doing today? Carlos lives in the. He grew up in the western suburbs of Chicago. Uh, he's a Cuban immigrant. His parents came from Cuba. That's where he grew up. He came down to El Paso to go to, to uh, med school in Juarez, and that's when he got. Then he became a vacuum cleaner salesman. But he went back home. He's working for the state. He's trying to save up some money. He's got a girlfriend, a girl he knew back when he was growing up. Uh, uh, it's a heartwarming story. That's part of the Texas Monthly story, and he's basically just trying to, uh, you know, get some money together. We're speaking with Michael Hall from Texas Monthly, and uh, so this guy was wrongfully in prison. And I'm sure you know, when when you're in jail, word gets around about why you're there. Where, did he tell you any stories of of any uh, mishaps of him trying to prove his innocence <laughs> in jail? You know, <laughs> no, and I didn't push it. Uh, you know, there were so many. This story was so complicated and so rich, and I knew yeah. that there was a lot of stuff there, and I just. No, I don't maybe blame it, Maybe I don't blame someday you. if we do a book, you know? Yeah, the story is painful enough as it is, but I can only imagine what must have happened during those 27 years there. Do we have time for one question? Um, how did yes, you, uh, David, go ahead. How did you find out about this, and then how long did it take you to, I guess, report it and write it up? It took, I mean, we found out about it from, 
usually when something like this happens, there's a big fuss about it. You know, you see it on the front page of the newspaper. Yeah. In El Paso, they basically didn't want anybody to know about this, so they let him out in the in uh, at nighttime with no media, yeah. nobody saying anything, so nobody knew about it. We only heard about it because a guy who keeps track of legal decisions in Texas by the courts called us up and said, do you guys know anything about this guy? And so I looked into it and found this amazing backstory. Well, you, you keep, where, I think I speak for, you keep after it. Um, where, where that's can we, that's uh, the second uh, one you've done on, on people who were wrongfully convicted. And I can't remember the, we, the other one was a couple we, of We got to get going, but I want to give you an opportunity to tell people where they can read the story. Well, you can uh, buy it at uh, HEB and the Texas Monthly, the current issue, or you can go to texasmonthly.com. It's right there on our website. Hey, thanks for spending some time with us. That's Michael Hall with Texas Monthly joining us on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids are running errands. Your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURV. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURV. This is an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. Here's Zach. Joining us now on 710 KURV from the Perryman Group is Dr. Ray Perryman himself, the Texas economist. And the uh, Federal Reserve up in Dallas was mentioning. Texas has had some pretty big growth over the past decade or so. So let's let's talk about that for a second. So how big is Texas really? Well, the state has had enormous growth in the past 10 years, and our success has eclipsed that of other areas by far. We, we virtually every year lead the nation in job creation, that sort of thing. And as a result, have, have really developed a, a very, very strong and solid and diverse economy that we continue to do positive things with. So there's certainly some challenges out there, but on the whole, the state economy has grown tremendously over the past decade, ad, ad, adding on, in a typical year two, three 300,000 jobs. That is incredible. So what, what's, uh, what separates Texas from any other state in the union that makes us so special? Because you always hear about uh, one industry making or breaking a state compared to the state of Texas, where we have a pretty diverse set of things here. Yeah, we do. For most of our history, well, if you go back to the early history of Texas, the agricultural interest dominated. Uh, first cattle and later cotton, and then we had a long period where oil was dominant. But if you look at it now, oil is certainly still very important. Agriculture is still very important. We have a massive technology sector. We have a massive health sector. We have a growing bioscience sector, large concentration of professional services, a number of very large cities. I mean, four of the ten largest metros in the country are in Texas. And so you, you, when you combine all that, we, ha- we have a lot of diversity. We have favorable costs compared to some of our uh, other states, uh, particularly on the coast. And then we, and, and we have the Sun Belt climate effect, which is also quite good. And then we have a, a, a good regulatory environment. We have 
the best economic incentive packages in the country, and all those things combined to make it very difficult for state, other states to keep up. We, we've won the Governor's Cup, that is, for, for the most new corporate locations and expansions for 11 straight years, and for the past two years, we've doubled the, the state in second place. Joining us on 710-KURV is Dr. Ray Perryman from the Perryman Group. Davis Rankin, go ahead. I know you got plenty of questions. The, the, uh, it see, my memory is uh, a little faulty, but I remember that um, an organization in California looked to see where companies leaving California over, say, a five-year period uh, recently, where do they go? Half of them went to Texas. Um, is is What's happening and why, if you know? And then is there any chance or that that the tech sector for which they are renowned in California would just migrate over this away? Well, we've seen a substantial part of it migrate over this year, this yeah. way over the past forty years or so, and and we, we Texas is a huge technology state now. Uh, you, with California, you know, we we focus on them, I think, because they're the only state that has more population than we have, and in that sense, are bigger than than, than Texas. But uh, but but you're seeing really migration from a lot of states into Texas. California is the most dominant. They're, some of their cost factors are very difficult. Some of the regulatory factors are quite difficult. And and I think those things, probably as much as anything, have contributed. And with the primary driver probably being the cost differentials. Uh, and, yeah. and then again, we have very uh, very good and solid economic development programs that that uh, make make it easy for them to to decide to come here. What would it take for Texas to hit the panic button economically? What do you what, mean? What, like, what, what would be like a worst case doomsday scenario for the Texas economy? <laughs> well, I, I, I think the major thing is while we've had all this growth and prosperity, we haven't necessarily minded the store on the things we need to do to sustain it. We have a, a young population, which is a great asset. The, the statistics on how we educate that population are not good. Uh, we're going to need to do that in the future. Growth brings the need for infrastructure investments of a, of a wide variety of types, broadband, uh, highways, ports, airports, all, all sorts of things, uh, uh, water, sewer, the whole nine yards. There's a lot of things that, that we haven't really done. We rank very low in things like healthcare access, uh, educational spending, those kinds of things. So there are some things that uh, that we need to do to sustain this growth going going forward. I think the single most important one is going to be to, to educate all the kids in Texas in a really world-class manner. Yeah. How, how big of a gap, in your opinion, do we have to bridge in order to get to that point? Well, it, it's pretty substantial. I mean, again, we're, we're fortunate that we have young people in Texas, but if you look, if, if you, if you look at the demographics of those groups, basically two thirds of the kids come from from socioeconomic groups that only have mm-hmm. about 8% of the money that is of the household wealth. And that means things like tutoring, not having to work part-time during school, uh, computers, software, summer enrichment programs, all those things will be difficult to achieve. And so it's very important that we put the resources into education that we need to. And it, it is, you know, if, when people ask me, the one thing that keeps me up at night about Texas, that, that's always the answer. Uh, but if we do that, Really, nothing could stop us from growing. If we don't do that, we're going to face some real challenges going forward. Joining us on 710-KURV is Dr. Ray Perryman from the Perryman Group. We're talking about the economy of the mighty Republic of Texas. Davis, your, your question. Go ahead. Uh, well, I have two. The first one would be, did I read that the comptroller of Texas, Glenn Hagar, says that Mexico is our 
this is not a shock. Mexico is our biggest trading partner or we're their biggest trading partner. It was in the context of uh, we depend on each other. And I always wondered how much of that is seen up country. I'm, 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 liter I'm literally writing my column for, the, for this week about that subject right at this very moment. And just to remind people just how important it is, literally as big as the Texas economy is, about 25% of our economy is tied directly or indirectly to Mexico. Mexico is, the, is now the U.S. biggest trading partner. It's ranked one or two for a number of years. It's by far the biggest trading partner for Texas and plays a huge role in, in the Texas economy. And, and, you know, you see a lot of it firsthand where you are. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are goods that cross the border five or six times during the production process. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's imperative that, that those relationships be preserved and we do everything we can to enhance the efficiency of those relationships, but but no, the the comptroller is certainly right about that. The relationship what? with Mexico and the economic interaction between, particularly Texas and Mexico, is extremely important. You see, uh, you, you see uh, uh, charges thrown back and forth between American politicians and Mexican, primarily the the president of Mexico. Um, how likely is that to um, to up, upset this relationship? Um, or, or does well, money the, does money trump everything in a sense? <laughs> well, in, in in some senses it does in a market society, but basically with the combination of the trade agreements we have in place and the Kilador regulations and those kinds of things, that in general pretty secure. The difficulty, of course, is that that inefficiencies in the infrastructure can result in breakdowns, and we, and we have seen some of that uh, of late with some of the challenges that. that that the area is facing and that sort of thing. But basically, I think the, the business relationships are relatively secure because they've been secured by, by heavily, heavily negotiated and agreed to trade agreements that, that have a, a long time to run. Uh, one question I did have for you before we go, Dr. Perriman, and this is kind of a big one. So uh, there's, I mean, there's always going to be talk under the Biden administration that they're going to come after the state of Texas and the oil and the gas. And I mean, they did the whole... LNG permitting thing recently, and uh, is that is that big enough to put a dent in the Texas economy? And if so, how big, if at all? Uh, not really. That was that was last week's column. <laughs> that was <laughs> a uh, the, yeah yeah LNG is is very important to the to our future here in Texas, obviously to to produce the natural gas. But beyond that, social socioeconomic from geopolitical perspective, to reduce the the dependency of Europe on on Russian gas, and, and then also in terms of, of dealing with climate issues, because the world is going to need more natural gas in the future. I mean, even the Department of Energy's own studies show that, that it needs today by substantial margin, and we can produce it in a clean, effective way here in Texas. And, and most of that oil that goes that leaves the country through LNG is going to ultimately end up substituting for coal in electricity generation around the world, which in turn has significant positive effects on the on, on the climate issues. So there's a variety of reasons why that's a short-sighted policy. I think it's primarily election year politics. I suspect the moratorium will be lifted shortly after the election because the administration fully realizes that, that we need the LNG facilities to be developed. But it's one of those unfortunate things that sometimes happens. Dr. Perriman, thank you very much for your oh. time as usual. And we're, we're going to call you, you next week, by the way. No, <laughs> to talk about your calendar. Column, yeah. I, have no, uh, I have no doubt. <laughs> awesome. Thanks a I'll lot, Dr. Perriman.
That's Dr. Ray Perryman, the Texas economist, joining us on 710KURB. You're listening to an encore presentation of the 956 Drive Home on News Talk 710KURB and KURB.com. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Parami app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radio Potomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710KURV. As long as you're scrolling through your phone, checking out your friend's latest Instagram post, take a moment to download the Radio Potomy app. Take the app with you wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Stay updated with top and bottom of the hour news and the latest weather forecast. Plus, you can listen live to local talk shows, nationally syndicated programs, and listen to previous interviews you might have missed, all in crystal clear digital audio. It's called the Radio Potomy app. Find it in your Google Play or Apple App Store from your friends at News Talk 710 KURV.